What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Pitcher Bet Sports Podcast. We are back. I am your host, Matt Guest, and with me out in Viva Las Vegas is Matt Morris. What is up, my friend? We are two weeks into the season, and it's already been a doozy. You know, it's been fantastic, I think, for us. Um, This is probably 14 years in the coming as football fans, where we get to enter a season with little to no expectations other than enjoying our team. Um, and it's funny because I was hammered this week with the fact <laughs> that we are Packer homers. So we be a little more mindful of that. But um, I'm enjoying this NFL season. I'm enjoying watching a young team that we root for. I'm enjoying watching young teams around the league. Uh, I thought that Packers-Falcon game was awesome because I was genuinely excited for Falcon fans as well. Yeah. And then looking at Carolina and enjoying that game, looking at Houston, kind of seeing what's playing out with their dynamic. You know, you and I talked about Nico Collins being a guy that we've talked about for a number of years on here since he came out of Michigan and, and the big impact he had this week in fantasy sports. But it's a very, very fun season um, transitioning away from the years of competitiveness we have either talked about in the podcast or really talked about with each other being Packer fans. And I, I feel like it's a rebirth as an NFL fan for myself. Also, you know, opting into that YouTube uh, TV slash NFL ticket yeah. game changer. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, we'll be that. That's that's good feedback. We'll be a little more mindful. It's gonna be hard not to be a homer sometimes, but <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. No, it would. It would to to echo your sentiment. It was one of the first times that we blew a game we should have won, and I was like, eh, we got to get used to that. Like, there's gonna be yeah. a lot more where that came from, right? Twelve isn't sitting there behind center. Um, you know, so on and so forth. But yes, to your YouTube TV comment. Uh, first of all, Sunday ticket. Thank you. You finally did something that was in the best interest of your viewers. The four box setup or the multi view screens in the YouTube TV Sunday ticket setup is unbelievable. It changes everything. I got the red zone in the corner. I got my ladies game on. I got my game on a random game on, which happened to be the Jaguars chiefs, which was a stinker, but still fun to watch at the same time. Um, it's just, completely transcended my viewing my viewing situation on Sundays and it makes me not want to go out and have to spend 150 bucks at the bar because I want to watch every game because I could just toggle through and do the four box setup so it's great I'm glad I opted in the $109 a month or whatever the hell I'm paying for the next four months in my opinion is worth it obviously because we're big fans so shout out Sunday ticket shout out YouTube TV you finally did something right so there's that um go ahead yeah i just it's interesting to your point too of like it's taken this long in the like the sports uh like universe and fandom we we complain a lot especially during mid-baseball season about mlb's like you know their version of ticket but it is nice that we have this option now and i i think the the funniest thing around it is we're still kind of paying out of the nose for it which is fine right I i think you you market out your price point and people like you and i who are doing this every week you know, have to kind of be engaged and have to be able to watch certain games. You know, we're going to pay, but you're also going to have the average sports fan. Maybe that lives at a market that wants to watch their team also pay because, yep. what I was telling you week one, we went out to the bar to watch Packers Bears and that was a solid $100 right there. And if you think about that, $1,700 over the course of the season that you're going to shell out just to go out and watch either a game that's yours at a market or to watch games in general. 
Um, so clearly the cost analysis is there, but definitely a home run win. Yeah, exactly. That that was how I looked at it. I was like, look, if I'm going to go to the bar or a friend's house or wherever to watch the Packer game, because I am going to, and I really want to watch Red Zone, like it is going to be cheaper for me to spend the hundred and nine hundred and ten bucks a month a hundred or a hundred percent. Yeah, I'm spending more than twenty five dollars if I'm going out like I there's just there's no doubt I'm taking down three drinks bare minimum during the Packer game if I'm out. And that's not food. That's not with my lady, all the other stuff, you know, so um, stoked about it. Absolutely love it. But I think what we came to an agreement on when preparing for this podcast is there was a little bit of a theme and then we're going to touch on it with a lot of different teams from week two and then also doing some discussions for, you know, what's coming up this upcoming week. But we're seeing somewhat of the ramifications, the consequences, whatever you'd like to call it for these teams with young superstar quarterbacks that had to finally pay them and what the result is for their team to it's early to start this season. And, you know, some potential pain points in windows really, really shrinking due to the, the salary cap situation in the NFL. Um, the first game from last week that we really kind of wanted to dive into with two quarterbacks that just got paid was, the Bengals versus the Ravens, two teams that are in completely different spots after week two, after the Ravens beat the Bengals, going to 2-0, and moving the Bengals to 0-2. But what we're starting to see, especially in a place like Cincinnati, is that Joe Burrow's gotten paid, he's a little banged up, and they've lost a lot of guys on the defensive side of the ball, and it's starting to show uh, in a negative light for their team. And um, that defense isn't bailing out the offense the way it used to. Not that Joe and that offense wasn't elite before. Yeah, and I think you really look at it from a, a draft perspective too, and we'll hammer home yet again roster construction and, and formulating. If you look at what the Ravens were able to do, the addition of Flowers, which is huge. They finally have a receiver that can stretch the field, that can catch the ball, they can run routes. Yes, it's early, but we're seeing really good dividends being paid on that draft pick early, bringing in Odell on kind of a team-friendly deal, also from his perspective, like he needed to get paid, but he ends up with the Ravens because they were one of the only teams that would pay him. We're going to really watch that development this season, but yet he's a weapon that's going to require at times double coverage, then also the proper ability for them to draft offensive linemen. Now, I know one of them did just go down this week. That was a loss, but they've had a really good job within the draft of drafting quality utility players on that offensive line, as opposed to the Bengals. You lose Jesse Bates, which is was a huge loss, and I don't really think we analyzed it from the perspective of he was the guy that made that defense go at times. It was a huge loss, and we're seeing his ability in Atlanta play very, very highly. And I think what we're going to see is a trajectory here where the Bengals are going to have to hammer draft picks and they're going to need to bring in elite level defensive players from those draft picks, playmakers from those draft picks. Because here it stands, both quarterbacks are paid and you have two very different rosters. You also have two very different head coaches, which I think we'll touch on a little bit later. But from a weapons perspective, from an overall protection perspective, I think that Lamar is in a better position than Joe is. And we're going to have conversations all season about, you know, Chase and Higgins. And obviously they're going to pay Chase because Chase is the more marketable player. But I really have seen some good things from Higgins over the past couple of weeks. And I've also kind of discussed with you before we jumped on today, 
where I think the dynamic is a little issue where Higgins probably profiles more as a wide receiver one and he's playing as a wide receiver two, whereas Chase is obviously going to be solidified in that role. And you look across the aisle with the Ravens, their wide receivers are really in an ability to be fluid on that uh, on that line of scrimmage as well as in their playbooks. They can play multiple different roles. Um, overall, it's, it's a lot to, to dissect, but I think we're going to have big time issues here with Joe making so much money. It's something we're going to circle back to in a little bit here when we talk about the Chiefs as well. But I think Lamar's ability on the field with that roster construction is going to be okay over the next couple of years, even though they're paying him. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's another big thing for the Ravens is that you kind of touched on it, is that they're finally balanced, right? Even though they had J.K. Dobbins go down, uh, that kid Hill went down this week, is they're not so overly reliant on Lamar's legs and them to be able to run the ball first because they have all the weapons at his disposal. Obviously, he has Mark Andrews, his main guy, who's under contract. Um, but now with Zay Flowers, a healthy Rashad Bateman, Odell Beckham Jr., and the rest of you know Nelson Aguilar, I think had like sixty-five or seven yards and a touchdown last week. Like they they've got some players, and I think the Ravens. This is the year that they are set up to be the most successful to actually come out of the AFC, but most importantly, um, take back the AFC North from Cincinnati. And on the flip side, you've got the Cincinnati Bengals now in a really particular situation where Joe Burrow's hurt. Like we just talked about, they've lost some guys on the the defensive side of the ball. So they've regressed a little bit on that side of the ball. And I think it's really starting to show Zach Taylor's lack of play calling and, you know, really his, his ability or non-ability to get Joe Mixon involved in the game. And what that's doing is forcing the team to throw dink and dunk passes and not giving Burrow enough time to let routes develop and actually take shots downfield. You heard Jamar Chase come out to the media today and said, we need to start taking more shots down the field so we don't throw all these short passes all the time. I think we're really going to get tested. Zach Taylor is really going to get tested this year on his ability to create a creative game plan and help out the Bengals. And I personally don't think he can do it. So it's going to be a really interesting season for them, especially with Burrow being banged up. Yeah, and, and Matt, I might be jumping ahead in our uh, constructive notes here, but I'm just going to kind of hammer home the concept now. Uh, and it was obviously a conversation you and I had before we jumped on, but Zach Taylor falls in the trio of coaches that left that Rams coaching staff. Yeah, And I have been underwhelmed, even dating back to the Super Bowl, which that's a much bigger conversation. I think they had an easier road to that Super Bowl than a lot of us really expect, especially coming off a Chiefs team that was just decimated that season. But I have not been impressed with what I've seen from him. I have not been impressed with Staley's ability in um, in LA for the Chargers as well. But then you have O'Connell for the Vikings that we may have the chance to talk on a little bit, where it's kind of the flip side of that. O'Connell has put in plays as well as passing attacks that have been really impressive with some of the weapons that he has. Taylor has very similar weapons to what O'Connell has in Minnesota. He has the two wide receivers. And, you know, we have no excuses at this point now coming into his fourth or fifth season as head coach for the Bengals to continue to allow him to have kind of this lack of ability in the play calling. You have the weapons. Like, what else are we going to do in order to give you the excuses? Sure, Joe Burrow's a little bit hurt. And coming into this year, it was that Joe Burrow did not have time. But at what point do we just really start looking at the head coach and saying, maybe it's really your problem with the development of the play, as opposed to O'Connell, who has shown, okay, I have the ability to set up a, a play call and a roadmap for a game and be successful, even when my wide receiver fumbles in the end zone or my quarterback fumbles at the line of scrimmage twice. Like he still has allowing the Vikings to be successful. Um, and then Staley's a 
totally different conversation that we have hammered home in this pad- podcast <laughs> a while. countless yeah. times. Um, but I just wanted to bring up that these three head coaches all came from the same organization. We're really only seeing success from my perspective from one of them so far. And we've really given a longer leash to the other two. And I think that longer leash for Taylor is Ben Joe Burrow. Um, we're starting to get into the trajectory of Aaron Rodgers and, um, well, I McCarthy. can't think McCarthy. Thank you. Yeah. Because at some point you've got to realize like we're wasting our prime quarterback's time here and he has the weapons. It'll be interesting to follow the rest of the season. I know it's only been two games, but I think your point was absolutely true. And I think hammered home. Well, the Ravens have an opportunity to dethrone the Bengals and this 100%. could be multiple years in a row if they don't make a decision at head coach. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the the last thing before we get into the nice segue that we just did talking about coaches, the Ravens now have a Cleveland Browns team with a washed up Deshaun Watson. I'm out on him. I don't think he's ever going to return to form at this point. I don't know if that's a hot take or not. He just looks bad. And then they lose Nick Chubb for the season. So their offense is completely done. Um, and then you got the Pittsburgh Steelers who at this point in their roster maturity is just not on the same level as the Baltimore Ravens. So it's all out there for the Ravens for the taking. Um, I expect them to win the division at this point. Now it's early, but I digress. Let's move on. I thought that was a really nice segue to the second point that I wanted to bring up for us here today, which was an AFC scout came out and AFC scout told a source that Justin Herbert is not going to be an elite quarterback and he has no impact on winning. And it kind of sparked this debate uh, on sports talk and on Twitter about his quarterback or is our wins a quarterback stat, right? Which is something I feel like we talked about every year. And it's a very hot topic for football in general and football debate. Um, I'm on the train of thought that it's not completely on the quarterback, the win, but the quarterback has a heavy influence in winning games, right? And how that relates to Justin Herbert. And you just talked about Brandon Staley and you and I have been obviously not on the bandwagon pretty much since the jump. And since we've been doing this podcast now for a couple of years here, um, that he's the problem, right? I think if they don't have Justin Herbert, they're the worst team in football, even with Keenan Allen, Austin Eckler, Mike Williams, because at the end of the day, they're getting out schemed from what I'm seeing in the games and from the tape. I don't think Herbert's doing anything to lose them games. He's not turning the ball over. He's also not, you know, obviously hitting every pass and making every read, but what quarterback is at this point. And at the end of the day, he went up against Mike Vrabel this week. And then last week he went up against Mike McDaniels. And if you put them on a coaching tiered list, Mc, uh, uh, McDaniel and Vrabel are way above where Brandon Staley is. And that's what we're starting to see every single year, every single time, even going back to the playoff game last year that they blew against Doug Peterson. He's the problem, not Justin Herbert. If I'm a Chargers fan or honestly, anyone in the media like ourselves here, I don't think any of the blame should be sent Justin Herbert's way. He's playing his ass off and doing everything that he can. The Chargers as an organization, especially from the top down with the head coach, um, that's where the, the fingers need to be pointed, in my opinion. Yeah, I have, I have two takeaways from that, Matt, because I agree with you on both. First being, how many more press conferences do I need to see where Brandon Staley continues to defend his actions as a head coach, defend his team, to defend the final drive of the game, to defend the play calling, to defend the overall structure that they went in with the game plan? All I see after Chargers games is him just standing up there like a buffoon, telling the media <laughs> That, you know, it was one single variable that changed the game for years now. 
over and over and over and over. Like how many times do you have to bring your employee into the office and have them justify their actions before you just say, you know what, there's the door. And I didn't know that's a harsh criticism for him, but he is a defensive coordinator that was hired as a head coach. And they absolutely do not have a defense and haven't for years. Like we did the same thing with Joe Barry in Green Bay, and yet he still has a job. So I lament it's it's frustrating. Hopefully this season we have some um, some relief with that situation. Secondly, and with uh, Herbert's criticism on him, him not being a one or two look quarterback and being a quarterback that has predetermined throws. That was the that real takeaway, yeah. right? I don't know that that's the case or not. I don't know that the offensive coordinator hasn't set in motion for him a pre-throw concept within the, within the play calling. Maybe he's identified that there's a weakness within either the offensive structure, the, the offensive line, that they're going to be a quick pass team, that his wide receivers can create enough separation within seven yards for him to get the ball out of his hand immediately. These are things that could be true. Herbert could be a predetermined thrower. Like That's, that's reasonable to think. But if that's the case also, then as an offensive coordinator, your job is to give him opportunity within that uh, play calling and that play structuring to allow him to get the ball out of his hands quickly, as well as having wide receivers that create separation. Now, Keenan Allen has done a pretty good job over his career at being a route runner. Mike Williams has not. Uh, Austin Eckler, obviously being one of the best pass catching backs in the game. Who was out, by the way. Who was out. But you often don't think of a predetermined uh, quarterback thrower checking down to his running back 11 to 14 times a game. That's not necessarily <laughs> in the play call. Um, so I don't necessarily believe in that narrative. I'm going to watch the narrative more. Um, but again, we kind of back to your conversation regarding the quarterbacks and wins too. Man, Justin Fields gets the same kind of criticism that Herbert's now just starting to get. And the, the narrative that you and I talked about this week was the sole play that people threw out on social media that Justin Fields did not read properly, where he had two or three open wide receivers. It was all over media. We talked about it. And I said, okay, how about the other 14 clips that we saw on social media where he had absolutely no time, his wide receivers were completely blanketed, or Chase Claypool just decided to do a TikTok dance five yards down the field, <laughs> wasn't even remotely following his correct route path. There is so much more to dissect when we're criticizing these quarterbacks, but I do think there are times where it is it is a quarterback's opportunity to win or lose a game. And sure. I think when you look at Fields' record, I buy into that more than I buy into Herbert's. Um, but we have the same issues for both of these quarterbacks. A lot of question marks regarding the offensive coordinator and the head coach where it's really hard to gauge either of their performances. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you, you said a lot there. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch on before I move into a couple things here is I, I want to say this is at least his third offensive coordinator as a starting quarterback in the NFL, Justin Herbert. Kellen okay. Moore, at, at least his second, but I think it's his third offensive coordinator that he's had. So there has been no rhythm or stability throughout his time there. You had mentioned Brandon Staley going up there defending his actions. Remember when he just used to go for it on fourth down all the time, Matt? <laughs> Every now time. He, now he doesn't? <laughs> Interesting. Um, and then lastly, like to your point, like yes, there are still things quarterbacks can do to go win games, make that drive down the field. field shout out Shadur Sanders, Colorado last weekend. Um, prime example. Obviously, it's college football and different. Nice little prime throw out there. That was yeah, great. There, yeah, you love that. <laughs> but like he, he went and won the game for his team, right? One of the most electric college football games I've seen in a long time. Uh, if you're not all in on Colorado, just stop listening to the podcast. I just don't know what's you don't like football. <laughs> um, but and then lastly, for the Justin Fields thing that and 
to everything you said, I agree for two Packer fans to be this aligned on some bears stuff, especially them being as shitty as they are is, is comical to me that we're getting you for the clip are getting destroyed by certain people in the comments. You know, it's just hilarious, but I don't know if you saw this as well, that they ran the same play three times in a row when he got picked six. Like there's just so many things going on with certain organizations like Chicago, like uh, the LA chargers that, we're not going to sit here and scream at the quarterback and Justin Herbert deserved every dollar that he got. Because if you don't remember after Philip rivers left, the chargers were the laughing stock of the league. So that's exactly what they'd be without him. Well, and the last thing I want to touch on, um, and I think we could have an entire episodes talking about the Justin field saga that's going on in Chicago, the narrative really being pushed by some of the talking heads in, in national uh, media perspective have talked about how at this point in a career, the, the data points have shown us that there is no ability for him to turn it around, right? The win-loss record, the Correct. amount of time yeah. at quarterback, the added weapons he's been given. And I think we might actually have a break point in, very, in, in data here. I think Fields can absolutely turn it around. As long as that offensive coordinator and a head coach can sit down and really look at themselves in the mirror and say, we are doing him no service at all in what we're doing. We have to completely shift the focus of our offense and we have to really start to make an emphasis uh, on, on changing things because everything I've seen from fields is he has, he has the raw ability. And sometimes he, he has the ability to make the right decision. He just has no confidence and he has no time. So if you can really start to change it in Chicago, I think we could see some of these national uh, media talking heads really look stupid from this. But it's just really unfortunate because I'm just really sick and tired of watching young quarterbacks be given no ability to be successful. And that's dating For all sure. the way back to like to his early year, right? When people just shit on him over and over and over. And now those same people are talking about how, man, to his top five quarterback in the NFL. And it's like, why don't we pull up your clips three years ago when you just yeah. had absolutely no faith in the kid? Yeah. And that whole draft class that you will, we'll get to it. We'll, we'll probably break down draft classes like halfway through, you and I were talking about it a little bit before this, but you just looking at the 21 draft class with Trevor Lawrence, Mac Jones, Justin Fields, Trey Lance. And it's like outside of Trey Lance, which he, you know, that's a whole nother topic for another time. Like Lawrence, Mac Jones and fields all thrown into a pretty rough situation. And I was watching Mac Sunday night and I'm like, dude, Mac can play. Mac is not the issue. Last year, you and I were like, Bailey's up, baby. You know, like uh, the whole thing. But he had a defensive coordinator calling plays for him on offense. And you see the talent there, but his best receiver is Kendrick Bourne. And it's like, you you, you can't realistically think that guy is going to win eight football games in the NFL in that division with Kendrick Bourne as his number one receiver. I like Kendrick Bourne. I don't think he's a bad player, but we all know he's not a number one. And sim like the fields, right? Like they got DJ Moore, but they don't have the right play calling, not the right scheme. And we all saw what happened in with Urban Meyer and Trevor Lawrence, right? Bring in Doug Peterson. They make the playoffs last year. They had a rough weekend, but he's finally steered the ship in the right direction. System, playmakers around you, and the coordinator, and just everything has to gel and align before we can completely throw these guys by the wayside. Trey Lance, different scenario. Well, and I think too with Mac, he's falling under the classification now of the Brady effect, where you had Brady in New England with Belichick, uh, able to operate that offense and operate, you know, winning organization and, and Super Bowl championships without having the number one wide receiver outside of Moss, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, you had a Hall of Fame tight end in Rob Gronkowski, but 
Belichick's mentality hasn't changed since Brady left. Like bringing Kendrick, Kendrick Bourne to be the number one, like there needs to be an emphasis here on bringing Mac Jones more talent because he's just not the greatest quarterback of all time. He's <laughs> right, not Tom right. Brady. And what are some of the things we look around the league, especially with young and successful quarterbacks that are either emerging or have like solidified themselves? I think Trevor Lawrence is a great comment you made. He has Ridley, right? They brought in Christian Kirk. They brought in Zay Jones. You know, talk about Desmond Ritter here. They brought in Bijan Robinson. They drafted Kyle Pitts. Like they've tried Drake London as well. You know, and the list goes on and on. These young quarterbacks have been given weapons and playmakers to elevate them and kind of mask some of their inability on the on the uh, on the field. Jordan Love, yet another one that we'll talk about in a little bit here. Mac Jones isn't really being given any help, and I think your comment about them having. Uh, the former Lions defense or Lions head coach, be their offensive coordinator, formerly a defensive coordinator, just completely disrespectful to football in general that we talked about last year, <laughs> yeah. as well as the development of a young, growing quarterback. So, a lot of issues there. But you know, Mac Jones has definitely fluctuated from he's going to be the guy to he's releasable to okay, let's give him twenty twenty three season to really develop and see what he has. Yeah. And to wrap up the quarterbacks that got paid, like these guys, that 21 draft class, the windows shutting on them before they have to get paid too. And it's like the time is now to feed them weapons and to get them everything that they need, because you're going to have to pick and choose, pay your $45 million to Trevor Lawrence, keep Calvin Ridley, right? Like you can't have both and and it's just not going to happen. Um, so super interesting there. Um, Good conversation. I like that. One to transition. Sorry, you have one more thing. I mean, I was just going to say, and this was something I wanted to talk about with the the Bengals earlier, but we had kind of gotten cemented down. Um, but it feeds right into the money situation that you were talking about, and it just it's a it's a statement based off what I've seen so far this season, and it's just that I think that the Bengals as well as the Chiefs are in big trouble moving forward. We kind of talked about it a little bit earlier with the Bengals and the situation they are in with personnel, but we're seeing it with both teams this year. These teams chose to pay their quarterbacks. They chose not to pay the playmakers. They've chosen not to play the defenders. And I think we're really starting to see it play out on the field. And it's really concerning for me because I think we might start to see a shift in overall production in the NFL as these two teams being the top dogs for years, possibly slipping down into that mid-tier range. And some of these other teams like the Jaguars, you know, like the Packers. 49ers are another perfect example of that. Chose not to pay the quarterback because they didn't need to, right? They invested high assets in Trey Lance, but now they have Purdy. You look at the 49ers roster, weapons everywhere, offense, defense. They're out here absolutely controlling the NFL while the Chiefs and while the Bengals have huge question marks at most of their position players. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you say you see the developing story in Philly, like Zay J. Brown getting upset. You know, Hertz just got paid. You know, we'll we'll see we'll see where it goes. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is why the NFL is so competitive, because you have to pay the quarterback because, Matt, I don't know if you watched the games last night on Monday. Uh, there's there's some bad quarterback play out there, you know, and if you don't have a guy, your team is going to be shitty. So um, it, it's a bit of a catch 22. But that that's what, that's what keeps us coming back. You know what I mean? We don't want the same team to be good. We hated Brady winning all the time. Right. People hated the Packers winning all the time and choking in the NFC championship game. You know, like shit happens. Um, Speaking of team, people hate teams. People hate Dallas Cowboys. um, America's team. I did want to highlight that they're absolutely unbelievable to start this season right now. And we were talking a little bit about this and that 
Mike McCarthy let go of that guy, Kellen Moore, and the offense looked incredible against this Jets defense. And, um, you know, they're going to win the Super Bowl, right? But what I wanted to say a little bit about Dallas is obviously give them their props, but it's them, the Niners, and the Eagles, right? I don't think this is much of a surprise to anyone. Those are the three top dogs. But what I want to see from Dallas before I really buy into this hype train that's been moving for the the first two weeks of the season is them face a little bit of adversity because we still haven't seen Dak look uncomfortable yet, which is props to Mike McCarthy and the team. But we need to see Dak see a little adversity, be a little stressed, throw that first pick six, and then we will really see the true identity of that Dallas Cowboys team. They caught the New York Giants on Monday Night Football smoked them had two defensive touchdowns which was huge to kind of set the tone for the game they blew him out of the water got lucked out facing zach wilson in that jets offense but i i'm waiting to see obviously those matchups against philly but them to have dak start the game with a pick right and they go down 7 10 13 nothing that's the cowboy team i want to see before i am like yep i'm gonna take them over philadelphia because the eagles have looked horrible for two weeks but they're two and out well, and I think, too, something that we're not talking about nationally is the fact that the Eagles lost their offensive coordinator. Yeah. Um, that's a really big takeaway as well. So there's transition there. There's, you know, trying to find the resolve of what they're going to be moving forward and trying to kind of integrate what was into what now is now. I think that takes a little bit of time. Um, but I, I think that's the matchup we're all looking for. It is a defining matchup this season in the NFL. Who is who? If the Cowboys can come out and beat the Eagles by 17, we're going to have a completely different perspective on, on that division. And I think we will announce the Cowboys as the team to beat uh, next to the 49ers. But as it stands today, the 49ers are the team to beat because of exactly what I, I said, roster construction. Everything that they have on the field is operating at 100%. I mean, Christian McCaffrey is proving exactly why you give up that many draft picks for a weapon and a talent like him. Um, you know, we did that with Ricky Williams in the saints, what probably 20 years ago now giving up an entire draft class and people laughed, but it's like, you know, sure. The 49ers didn't give up a first rounder, but they give up a lot for McCaffrey and he's producing and he's elevating that team. He's making guys like Brandon Ayuk, you know, that much better as well as his, you know, second year quarterback, but the Cowboys are fantastic. And I, again, I, th I think I want to see them against a more competitive football team. The Giants are looking like one of the worst teams in the NFL uh, after two <laughs> weeks. And that might be an over, uh, overreaction, but it's, well, they play, they play San Fran Thursday night with probably yeah. without Saquon. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see how, we'll better. see how that looks. Yeah. Um, and then you have the jets week two, right? Like, Week two, coming off the Aaron Rodgers injury, there wasn't as much emotion involved. I think emotion really helped the Jets stagnate that Bills team in week one. Even after Rodgers goes out, that defense played with a lot of fury. It was a different situation in week two. And, you know, McCarthy and, and that offensive coordinator, to credit, was really able to hone in on some, some deficits that this Jets defense had. Stayed away from Sauce Gardner a lot of that game. Sauce not being matched up one-on-one -on -one with C.D. Lamb that entire game was something that kind of went into the equation as well. Um, I still have question marks in the the long-term health of Tony Pollard. If you lose Pollard, what is the answer after Pollard? So there are some question marks still, but overall, I like what I've seen from the Cowboys. It's early. They've had some easier matchups for the first two weeks. Yeah, hundred percent. And you're right about the Jets too. I, 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 my, I didn't have any takeaways from them. I didn't expect them to win the game. I didn't expect them to look good. I thought they fought well in the beginning. Had a bunch of turnovers in the second half, which was, you know, 
to be expected. They play New England this week at home, and I think that's the first real like measuring stick on who is this team going to be in 2023, right? Yep. Are they going to be a bottom-of-the-barrel squad with Zach Wilson, which is kind of where I'm leaning and what I'm expecting. doesn't matter how good the defense is. That's a, the, to the point of why you pay quarterbacks because you can end up with a Zach Wilson, you know? Um, and then, uh, you know, you'll have the New England Patriots coming to town 0-2. So, you know, they're going to want to win. We hammered this thought last year. You have Brees Hall, you have Delvin Cook. By the way, I'm apologizing to the listener. My dog is just losing her mind right now. Um, you have Brees Hall, you have Dalvin Cook. Run the ball 40 times a game. That was our right. number last year, right? It was like, run the ball 40 times a game, you will win. And we brought up the data points and it showed success. That's all you got to do, really. Zach Wilson's awful. I understand that they're going to stack the box, roll them out into, into the flats, right? Check downs, screen plays. Do whatever you have to do to get these two involved because you have two of the elite, talented players at their position on your roster. They need to be the focal point. I don't care if it's Joe Flacco, if it's White, if it's Zach Wilson. Like You have to lean on your, your best two backs, and then you have to find a way to get Garrett Wilson involved. You know, If it's, if it's reverses, if it's jet sweeps, if it's just slant plays, like those three players need to be the key because it's the only way they're going to win games is with their playmakers getting the ball and whatever quarterback is playing, getting it to them as quick as possible. Okay, moving into week three here. We had a few teams at 0-2, but some of them weren't very surprising, you know, like the Texans, you know, so teams like that that we know are tanky. The Cardinals, who in my survivor pick, I've picked against the Cardinals twice and was having a heart attack at halftime. And I was like, wow, I'm really out on my survivor pick league because I picked the Giants, to your point. Um, but we, we really narrowed it down to four teams and I'm going to let you kick this off, Matt, but the question's really simple. And this, this segment's going to be pretty straightforward is which Owen two team out of these four has the most to lose this year. If they don't have a successful season and it's the chargers, the Broncos, Cincinnati and Minnesota. I think it's the chargers for me. Um, and I, I think it's because we've, we've continued to pound the drum of Staley over and over and over and this is the season where I think a change will finally happen. I also don't think bringing Kellen Moore in is really going to change the overall format of this team. At the end of the day, the man that's going to be sacrificed is Staley. We know that Sean Payton's going to be given a little bit more leeway there in Denver. Totally. Um, and we've seen a little bit better of a product than we saw last year. But the same question mark comes up. It's, is Russell Wilson done? Two weeks is not enough time for Peyton to have solidified and stamped his name on this organization yet. We need to give him more time. And then from the Vikings perspective, you've just had some really unfortunate luck. Um, and I also think that that organization is in flux as well. They're presumably going to lose Kirk Cousins after the season with the one year left on his contract. That's the national narrative right now that will be seen. Um, uh, but I think O'Connell in general, as we talked about earlier, is is producing a very good uh, product with on the field, like just things seem to go wrong. So, you know, that he may be the guy to usher in a new era. And if they keep Kirk, you at least, you know, you have a guy that can make them competitive within this NFC North. But I think ultimately, Brandon Staley is the guy that will be sacrificed if the Chargers can't get over that hump. And at 0-2, it's not looking great to start. Yeah, I am. Um... I feel like the obvious answer would be Cincinnati, but to be honest, like if Burrow is as hurt as it looks, 
out there. Like he obviously doesn't look like himself. I, I do think that's a valid excuse. The problem is, is their window is, is basically shut, right? Like they're going to lose T Higgins at the end of the season, most likely. Um, but I think personally, I think the team with the most to lose on this list is, is the Minnesota Vikings. It's to what you were just saying a little bit. If they lose Kirk cousins, what's up with Justin Jefferson? He already said that the biggest thing with him isn't the contract. It's about winning. And if they lose Kirk cousins, they better hope that they have a top three pick next year. And honestly, they better hope to get Caleb Williams because early signs are showing that Shadura Sanders doesn't really want to come out. The kid from North Carolina looks okay, right? Like, is he really going to come in and save the franchise? And does Justin Jefferson want to be a four, five, six year vet on a team that has no shot at making the playoffs, right? I think there's a, this is a really, really big breaking point for Minnesota. And what we talked about a little bit with them, like, I don't necessarily think they're too far away from still being somewhat successful. They have three turnovers, four turnovers in the first game. They fumbled a punt. Jefferson fumbled that ball out of the end zone. I think they had a pick um, in that game against Philadelphia. Like, they still have a formidable team in a wide open NFC outside of those top three teams. Um, but this season can get away quick from them. <laughs> like we talked about, I said, I don't want to say it's a must win last week, but after this week, like they could really honestly be two and six. And that's when we're really going to maybe see a diva outbreak from Justin Jefferson. He doesn't seem like that guy, but you know, just looking at the trends from being a football fan over the past, 30 years is this stuff starts to happen where he's like, I'd rather go play here, you know, because I need to start winning. The stats are great, but I think Minnesota has the most to lose if they don't have a successful season. Yeah. I'm man. I'm going to be honest. I think that was the narrative that I would have agreed with last year because we, me and you at least knew who the Vikings were going to be coming into this year. Sure. I don't, I don't think we expected an Owen to start, but we knew that defense was not very good. You know, we, we knew that the offensive line had some work to be done, right? The left tackle uh, that they took, I don't want to say it's Darsho, probably butchering it, and I'm sorry about that, but it was a really nice draft pick last year um, or the year before. Okay, one win. The rest of the offensive line question marks. Like, we knew this team had plenty of holes that needed to be filled, and I think we're really starting to see that in the product now. But for me personally, I think they're going to put Jefferson in a really hard spot you've got two abilities for franchise tags, right? So you've got the opportunity to just play hardball with him. And I think because he also knows the, the current roster construction, he's kind of stuck with either signing with them or demanding a trade. And if he gets traded out, he's probably not going to go to a great situation anyways, because he's still going to want to get paid at least top 10 value. He deserves sure. number yeah. one value, yeah, but like, sure. look at how it's going for Devante so far. Um, and then I think from the Cincinnati Bengals perspective, I think we kind of knew coming into the year that they were going to be competitive. They had a chance to win a Super Bowl, but also we had question marks on that defense. That's come true as well. So for me, it goes right back to Staley because Staley has the best roster out of all of these guys. Maybe the Bengals can push because of the offensive weapons they have, but Staley's got the offense and the defense. He's got the money spent on offense and on defense. And next year when Herbert's contract really kicks in and they have to start letting some of these guys go, like JC Jackson, Khalil Mack, that's when he's really going to have a test of like, what kind of coach are you? This is his opportunity to buy him one more season. I don't think he gets past this season. You have such a great division. You have such a very, very challenging schedule. I think O'Connell has the opportunity to be there for a number of years. I think Taylor is going to have the McCarthy nature in Cincinnati. And then I think ultimately Sean Payton decides when he wants to leave Denver. Um, I think hot seat. I think it's definitely Staley for me. 
I don't disagree with that. I don't I don't think any of them are on the hot seat besides Staley for sure. Uh especially after the playoff loss last year. Oh, um so bad. <laughs> moving on to a, the a quick three minutes of homer take, I guess, considering you know that's our feedback we've gotten. Uh you want to talk a little bit about Jordan Love's path of development. Yeah, I think Matt, at this point in our NFL season, two games, we know everything that's gonna happen and we can solidify that. <laughs> but uh yeah. I think, I think, Matt, this is really kind of shaping up for us to be the template moving forward of how to develop a young quarterback. Jordan Love, in his three years sitting behind Aaron Rodgers, understanding the offense, which I think is even more important than sitting behind Aaron Rodgers, now being allowed to come out and execute that offense and do it at a very high level, a high level where we haven't even seen him let it rip yet, is really showing the rest of the league how to develop young quarterbacks, draft, allow the development process, bring them into the offense that they've been sitting behind and allow them to execute. Because after two weeks, I'm very, very impressed at the ability for him to execute the offense. I don't yet know who he truly is as a quarterback because he hasn't need to let it rip because the offensive structure has been so perfect for him to just operate as a, as a pass thrower. And I think the rest of the league needs to take note of this. When we really challenge some of these guys like Tua and Mac Jones and Justin Fields, and we really look back on their careers and we say, well, for most of them, they were thrown into the fire almost immediately. There's obviously obviously some immediate criticism on these players. But let's scale it back to Jordan Love again and the player that he played this last week, who is also allowed half a season to sit, which was Desmond Ritter, came out and execu- executed that offense pretty well. Should have had three turnovers. There were two dropped interceptions. But I think out of those three throws that we saw, I was very happy with what Ritter was able to do in that offense because he had the ability to operate a, a coach's plan and then B he had playmakers behind him that did a very good job at really masking some of those um, inefficiencies that he does show as a quarterback. But again, all he was doing was operating the offense that was given to him. Yeah, for sure. And I don't disagree with you. I think you're, you're right. I think just the overall premise, maybe it's not three years of yeah. sitting, but just let the quarterback learn a little bit first is still, it still seems to be the correct path forward, right? You know, cause you look at Trevor Lawrence, that first season was a wash. Lucky he didn't get injured. CJ Stroud's looking really nice, right? Like he's, he's actually throwing really good balls. He's looking productive, but health right like god we got to make sure he's going to stay healthy and he's he's going to have a tough year this year just to win ball games right uh you look at anthony richardson two for two injured already two games in a row injured right as much as we've liked what we've seen out of him that's a red flag and that's really really scary this early in his career um and then you look like you said at guys like desmond ritter was able to sit behind We'll see if he becomes something. It's obviously panning out for love. The problem with that is there's so much immediate pressure. And for a team like the tech, I think the Texans is a perfect example is they're not throwing Davis Mills out there. You know, like that's the problem. Like it's a lot easier when you have Aaron Rodgers or if you had like a Phil Rivers or I think it, unfortunately, I don't know what the hell happened with the kid from Fresno state that I liked uh, Hayner in new Orleans. He got suspended for PEDs or whatever, but sit behind a Derek Carr for a few years, right? A couple guys like that. Um, the kid in uh, in Vegas right now, uh, the one who went to Purdue, I think he's, I forget his last name. He's actually pretty nice. Um, but him sitting behind Jimmy G maybe for seven, eight, nine games. If Jimmy starts playing bad, they'll roll the kid out there. Um, that That is going to be the more productive plan for young quarterbacks moving forward. The problem with it is, you spend the number one draft pick on Joe Burrow. You send the number one draft pick on Trevor Lawrence. You spend it 
on, um, you know, CJ Stroud and these guys that went early this year with a shitty franchise, they're going to get played. And fortunately for Lawrence, he didn't get hurt. Unfortunately for Richardson already for Joe Burrow, you see these bad injuries and that that's the risk. Well, and I will hammer this point home over and over and over, but you know, Patrick Mahomes credits Alex Smith as being the number one focal point that helped his development. You know, Mahomes sat all all every game except the last game, which was meaningless for that team. And he came out and you know, he he showed some flashes, but he he didn't look like Patrick Mahomes yet. And obviously the interview comes out after the season about how big of an impact Alex Smith had on him. And I agree with you. I, I think Jordan Love's three years is a bit excessive. Um, I, I think maybe two years for some of these third through seventh rounders that really have to come out and like understand the offense of the NFL and, and the tempo and the rhythm. Um, but you're right for, for first round quarterbacks, for the most part, a year should be enough. You have elite level talent that got you drafted in the first round. You should be able to come in and understand the off the NFL system within a year. Um, uh, and I think Jordan love probably coming out of, uh, what was it? Utah state. So it wasn't a, a big time yeah. conference. He probably was already at a disadvantage of being a first round quarterback, but he did have the immense, a physical ability to be shown as a first rounder. Um, it, it just, it's really unfortunate that these teams choose to just throw some of these kids into the fire, but it's a, it's a business, right? Like, what are you supposed to do when you're paying a guy top five money and the NFL fan base wants to see him? And you do have Davis Mills behind him who isn't a like experienced veteran quarterback exactly. like you talked about with Carr. I think Carr is the perfect example, you know, not as good as Alex Smith, but just in the same territory and you leadership, have the opportunity. leadership. Yeah. He's a leader in Jimmy G too, man. Like leader, bro. Like, you know, he, you know, he's a pro the locker rooms always love him. Um, you know, I think of like a Ryan Fitzpatrick would be a great guy yep. for a young kid to sit behind, you know, players like that, you know, I'm, I'm having a bit of a tough time thinking of some other guys off the top of my head, but yeah, man, like it's, it's a lot easier well, said Matt, than done. I think Tom that's, Brady Garoppolo got to sit behind Brady. Rogers, yeah. right? Like Brady got the upper echelon. Drew, Drew Brett Bledsoe, yep. man. Like, you know, like it, it's definitely a, a proven formula, but that's also why some of these organizations are just so much better than yeah. others. You know, like even think of New Orleans, like they're not that great, but they're still good. Even after Drew Brees has left, they haven't dipped hard like they should have, you know? Well, and, and then I think this builds into a completely secondary conversation here, Matt. I think it's teams like New Orleans and teams like the Lions and teams like the Vikings where it's, you know what, okay, we can't get Aaron Rodgers. We can't get Peyton Manning. We can't get Tom Brady, but we can get Kirk Cousins. We can get Jared Goff. We can get Derek Carr. Let's bring them in. They're going to they're gonna help us win eight or nine games. They might help us win a division, you know, but more importantly, we finally found the solution where if we need to draft a hooker from Tennessee, yep. we yep. can bring them in. We don't have to start them. Right, the Vikings probably should have been hammering home second through fifth round quarterback draft picks in the anticipation that we're going to allow them to sit behind one of the greatest professional quarterbacks in terms of his professionalism in Kirk Cousins, and he's going to help develop this kid. And when Kirk leaves in the 2023 offseason, this kid will basically just come in and be a top 20 quarterback, and we can evaluate if he's the future. And, and I think some of those teams, especially the Lions who struggled for years and years and years and years and years, decades, Browns as well, right? Like the Browns tried and they just made a terrible decision. Um, but I, I give kudos to the Lions because you, what you do is you change the entire philosophy of what the organization was doing. You know, like Matt Stafford, first overall quarterback off the board, struggled for years only to the, the opportunity of having Calvin Johnson there with him to elevate his game. 
but bringing in Jared Goff really was keeping that that franchise alive for possible change in the future. And I, I just don't think enough teams have done that either. Yeah, no, I totally agree. That's a good point. That's a good conversation. That that's a I'm gonna put that down on the bookmarks for a little offseason, you know, like some of the best mentors, you know, some of the best mm-hmm. quarterbacks that sat behind. Cause that the I, it's hilarious. I forgot about Mahomes, you know, like hello, the best quarterback, do, right? The best quarterback in football chilled for a year. Mm-hmm. Even Herbert was supposed to chill for a year till they punctured Tyrod Taylor's lung, you know? Um well, and I think but, Tyrod Taylor in himself is a uh, he's an episode evaluator where we could look at all the opportunities that Tyrod was about to have, only not to have it. I mean, it was like three real. straight seasons in a row where at he least. was going to be the starting quarterback for the full season, and it was either a lung or it was a hamstring or it, it, it was awful. I mean, it was a very unfortunate career where he never really, outside of that one year in Buffalo, yep. like got his shot. Yeah, yeah, crazy, man, crazy. All right, we're going to close up shop with a little something new that we wanted to do. We're going to call it Around the Sports World. TBD could change. Sounds nice. Around the Sports World. Um, Just talk, honestly, today's one topic, but one to two topics about other things going on as we're going to dive. It'll mostly, through football season here, be Major League Baseball playoffs, right? Unless something super crazy happens in the NBA, but um, highly unlikely. So to close, actually, excuse me, not to close, to start our first segment of sports from around the world, a.k.a. USA. We're going to pass it off to Matt Morris, who, once again, located in Las Vegas. For the for the listeners, we live together in Orange County. I grew up in Orange County. Matt lived there for a few years. But now Matt is turning himself into OCs slash the LA Angels of Anaheim's number one enemy. And I think you're going to put a bow on that title, your villainhood of the OCLA Los Angeles Angels um, with this last segment of our podcast today. And and that's going to be it. We're going to put a bow on it. I'm going to give you the mic, give you the floor, and um, there will be a clip on this. It'll be fun. And then we're going to close the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, what it's been two years now since we've been hammering the notion of the uh, LA Orange County Angels. And I think we've hammered it home and we've been honestly right every time we've taken uh, our, our takes and talked sure about have. the podcast and then we've posted them and we've gotten a lot of, uh, I've gotten a lot of hate because it's been my face, um, but we've been right. And the first take was that we thought Mike Trout should have been traded. And this was probably two years ago. Uh, my take was was very aggressive. I had said that Mike Trout should no longer be considered the, the best player in baseball. I think he was going to take a step back. I noted uh, data points in his injury history that was really concerning. And, you know, we posted it and almost immediately he went down for three months again. And it's been that way since. Again, this was two years. And that was just the notion that, hey, you have the opportunity in this moment to still seek full value for Mike Trout. The league still views him as the best player. This is possibly and will change very quickly if you don't act on trading Mike Trout. What happens? I just detailed that. He gets hurt a lot. He loses that star-studded value of being the best player in the game. And now you're paying him $43 million a year. So that, of course, was a concern. And then we, I jumped on the bandwagon, I think you as well, regarding Otani, how everything was handled, uh, whether they should sign him or trade him. Obviously, the injury has happened now. There's you know just unbelievable, unfortunate nature of the situation. But yet again, the Angels are not making the playoffs. And then to finally kind of wrap up this little segment, 
I talked about how I really didn't enjoy my in, my overall experience every time I went to an Angels game. I've been to a lot of ballparks, and I think it was a little aggressive. Like I don't necessarily believe anymore, or like even probably in the moment that it's the worst ballpark or the worst viewing experience at a ballpark in baseball. But for me, it's definitely one of them. And I look at this overall situation. And I just think to myself that the Angels are probably the worst ran organization, not only in baseball right now, but possibly sports. If you look at the last 20 years that we've been alive and as sports fans, either the free agent decisions that they've made haven't worked, the ability for them to lock up Trout and then not provide a team around him for what is now almost 10 years, and then the inability to move Otani at the deadline right before he tears his UCL again, which would have given Mike Trout possibly five, six prospects to build around and bring up and make them a competitive team over the next five or six years, they chose not to trade Otani. And I think that was one of the most catastrophic decisions they've made throughout this 20-year stretch. And I think for me, it is what ultimately makes the Angels the worst franchise in Major League Baseball right now. Worst brand franchise. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting what they're doing out there. Uh, it's been a long time since 2002. I lived there when they won the World Series. It's a really cool year, fun team. From Josh Hamilton, <laughs> CJ Wilson, Pujols. Albert Pujols, to the decision you just talked about with Mike Trout. I mean, the last great season they had, Vlad Guerrero was their best player, right? They went to the playoffs one time with Trout, zero times with Otani, and they're gonna not they're not gonna have either one of them on their team next year. Most likely. I'm assuming they're gonna move off Trout. Maybe not. I don't know. He's kind of a different guy. But it's just extremely disappointing to to Orange County, you know, like that there's one team in OC and it's that it's the Angels, you know, and like I said, 2002 was a long time ago. It doesn't feel like it, honestly. I remember when they won that title. It was really it was really cool for the city. But they might be the worst team in baseball now for the next few decades. There's no World Series in sight. There's no farm system in sight. They've ruined the prime of their of two of the best players in Major League Baseball history. Artie Marino is out of touch. He keeps raising season ticket prices. He keeps fielding terrible staffs to manage the team, to coach the team, to run the minor league department. And he doesn't seem really eager to get rid of the team because it's just fun for him to have a major league baseball team. And he's running the team into the ground. Otani's going to be in LA playing for the Dodgers next year, hitting 45 home runs with Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts. And uh, as much shit as we've talked, like like now that we're doing this and like I kind of had some, some thoughts, like it's just, it's honestly sad for one of the biggest cities in the United States, one of the most well-off counties in the world to not have a team that they can be proud of. And it's going to get ugly out there in Anaheim for the next, I don't know, hopefully only five years, but I, I think it could get really, really bad fast out there. Well, and I think that's the takeaway that I've had for two years now with evaluating this team is it, it is sad. And honestly, I, I, I look back on some of the decisions already made and, I understood where he was coming from. I understood Josh Hamilton. You thought you had three or four more years of prime Josh Hamilton. Didn't turn out that way. You thought you'd get three years out of CJ Wilson, you know, like bring him in, really solidify the rotation, be a good number two, a great number three. He's not a number one, but it was a smart signing. Uh, Pools, right at the time, no one understood why the Cardinals didn't want to pay him big money. 
the Angels come in and they they give them a very fair contract for what a Hall of Fame top 10, top 20 all-time player should get, kind of still in his prime years, exiting his prime years. And then a trout, you you sign the greatest player in the game. You do it. There's no question about that. Injury yeah. concerns, you know, like you, you got to sign them, right? It, it's a no-brainer. And then, and then the Otani situation, um, kind of trying to field a team around Otani and Trout. And I, I genuinely think they did a marginally decent job with the talent that was out there trying to bring pieces in. Yeah. It just didn't work. Like whoever would have thought signing Anthony Rendon, Mr. Consistent, that's what he had been in his career. The most consistent third base, 300 hitter, 20 home runs, 100 RBIs, 90 runs. Like he was the guy that was supposed to come in and be the consistent base setter for Otani and Trout. And all of a sudden he climbs into his shell and is just a giant asshole. Um, Like he's just Moreno has had some really bad luck. And I think what you said was perfect, Matt. It has to be who is running the organization from the front office, from the team managers. Uh, it, It can't just simply be that, you know, some witch doctor has put a curse on this team. But I, I look back now and I, I, I'm just disappointed. I'm sad. And I have to label this as one of the most catastrophic disasters from a, a team run organization totally. in 20 years. And it, it, it sucks. Um, it sucks because I, I want Orange County to have a really good team. I want Angels fans to have a product on the field where they can think about postseason baseball because I remember O2. I remember the rally monkeys. I remember the electricity in that stadium. And it was, it was one of the first times I had seen it in in pro baseball where like you were going up against bonds and every fan in that stadium thought they had a chance. I didn't think they had a chance. You're going up against Barry bonds. What happens? They win the world series that, that, that County deserves a really good baseball team. And, and everything that I have said over the last couple of years to be so critical of this team has been because you, you need to deliver a better product. You need to make better decisions and they just haven't done that. And it's going to cost you. Uh, Tani, as you said, he's gone. He has to, he has to be leaving. Yeah, he's and, gone. And they're going to suck for a long time. He's going to be bad. And, and I think the takes like, I don't even, this won't be clipped or anything, but if anyone listening from the hate out there, like the, the clips came from the writing on the wall to today. The clips came from when I send you the screenshot that Otani's cleared his locker. And you're like, this was, but this, the writing was on the wall. Yeah. And you, and it, there's things in life where you see, and you know what's happening, but you just refuse to acknowledge it, right? And that's why two years ago, I don't know if it's last year, two years ago, like, why are we thinking about trading Otani? Like, let's really think about trading Trout and building the team around Otani, right? Like, well, why why isn't that at least a thought? Or why isn't there any sort of uh, proactive, <laughs> proactive steps being taken by the team to ensure future success? Why is it this year? Because the roster for this year, while still good, was not good enough, was not going to beat the Astros. And then you start the season. It's like, oh, shit, they're not even going to beat the Rangers. And the next thing you know, you're 20 games under 500. Um, just a bummer, man, for OC. Uh, I guess kind of a damper on our first little around the world. But seeing Otani leave, knowing that he's getting UCL uh, surgery already did successfully, it's like it's just a double whammy. Like the Angels are dead, and then we aren't going to be able to see him pitch. And hopefully he comes back 100% from that. But honestly, we, we don't know. We don't know if his best days are behind us. Excuse me, on the mound. Yeah, and you know, Matt, like even if they are, um, what a ride! What a ride it was, and I, and I think when we all talked about Otani coming over, especially your perspective, because you were more logical <laughs> than I was. Yeah, uh, this was probably the the like the best case scenario to really think that a player could dual sport it 
uh, or to, to dual position it within one sport being baseball. This was the fear that like the body just could not do it. And I don't think this was mismanagement of Otani. I, no. I don't think this was anything um, that some of the people are saying that like the angels are, are to blame for this. I think this is just what happens when a guy plays 150 games, pitches and hits. The body cannot, it's not a machine like that. It can be as close as it can be, but like this is the beauty that we've got from Otani. And if he's just a DH or maybe a, a spot reliever or a spot starter uh, the rest of his career, we got to watch one of the the coolest experiences within sports. You know, outside of Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders doing double sports, which I think is a conversation we need to kind of throw into the Otani ring one of these days. Um, but yeah, man, it, it's it, it's unfortunate. And I think I'll look back on his time with the Angels and, and just think about how incredible it was and, and how disappointing it was that they didn't make the playoffs. But at least Angel fans did get to watch one of the greatest experiences in sports history for five or six, seven years. Well said, well said. All right, everyone. Well, we'll see you next week. Uh, You'll see us on Instagram, TikTok, wherever you can find us on socials. Um, Have a great rest of your week. Enjoy this football season. Cheers.